I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in the series, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. Why be at church? What do you do once you're here? How will the whole thing hold up over time? All of that depends on you. Years ago, I was at some pizza joint in Portland. I don't remember which one. There's a few, if you've ever been. And uh, we were sitting at one of those long tables where you can't possibly socialize with everybody, so you, you, know, you become confined to the conversation of your immediate vicinity. And virtually everyone there was a churchgoer of some kind. There was like a multi-church event going on in the city, and so a bunch of us ended up at this restaurant. And this was Portland, so, you know, everyone there was all young and white and millennial, and they all had apartments in the city, and they were devi- designers or university students, or they worked at places like Nike or Intel, and a lot of us didn't know each other. I was fairly new to the area at the time. We'd come with different groups of friends and become scattered in the chaos of being seated. So what do you do to get the conversation going? You talk about what's right in front of you, which in this case was pizza. The pizza... I argued, was too fancy, too authentic. If you're listening to this on the podcast, you can't see me doing air quotes. It was uh, paper thin, you know, and soft. Others disagreed. The pizza was delicious, they said, authentic. But the atmosphere for them was all wrong. You know, the decor was slightly off-trend and therefore ruining the experience. And we talked like that for a while, superficial, safe, And then someone took the next logical conversational step when pizza had been exhausted. Where do you work? What do you do? When the question made its way around to me in this little group on the corner of the table, uh, I worked at a church. Ah, interesting. Tell us more. We know about that church. We've heard of that church. We've been there. But, you know, everyone kind of went to other churches as well. And though the conversation had broached a slightly more personal dimension than pizza preferences, it somehow resumed the exact same shape as moments prior. Some argued that the church where I worked was too hip. Others disagreed. The church, church's trendiness was acceptable, but its particular approach to worship did not suit their preferences. Or someone mentioned that they did not feel appropriately welcomed upon their first and only visit to said church. One guy took issue, I kid you not, I will never forget, with the width of the pastor's pant legs. He said, and I quote, I don't trust pastors in skinny jeans. And I said, oh, ah, yes, remember that part in the Apostles' Creed where they, you know, they vest orthodoxy in the widths of one's pant legs? Church, it turned out, was a lot like a Portland pizza restaurant. It was like any other Yelp listing, subject to our critique as consumers, what we liked and what we didn't and why, whether or not we take our business elsewhere. This is, after all, what we are. We're consumers. We are the byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. We are the illegitimate children of Grubhub and Amazon Prime. We've killed off our experts And we've crowned user reviews and uneducated influencers for their superior reliability. We get shopping recommendations from robots, this is real, or algorithms, and parenting advice from TikTok. How can we ever understand a life of apprenticeship? 
I cite Ryan Coogler's 2015 film Creed all the time because I get to. I'm the one up here talking. Um, it's one of my favorites. In Creed, Adonis Creed abandons his promising career trajectory in a kind of a, a white-collar office world, his life of luxury and affluence in Los Angeles, and he gives up everything and travels alone to Philadelphia. He had come from a literal mansion, but he uses what little money he had scrapped together to rent this old, empty, tiny apartment. And then he immediately seeks out Rocky Balboa, the former heavyweight champion of the world, and he asks him again and again and again, train me. If you know the story, Rocky declines, at least at first, but Adonis insists, asks again and again, until finally Rocky agrees to train him with a warning. He tells him how hard it's going to be and how painful it's going to be and how much it's going to cost him if he pursues this life goal. And Rocky says, and I quote, you gotta work hard, I swear to God, if you're not gonna do it, I'm out. And Adonis Creed tells him, I'm ready. I was thinking about that scene this week and I decided to look up Yelp reviews for local boxing gyms to make a point here tonight. This is an honest-to-God review of one such place. It was honestly the first one I found. First location, first review. Quote, called to ask some questions about the gym, so they're not even there. Called to ask some questions about the gym as I was potentially going to sign up. There was a woman that answered and had an attitude. So I hung up and decided I don't want to deal with this spot. The pizza is too thin. The decor is slightly off. The pant legs are too skinny. The teacher had a bad attitude. He told me I had to take up my cross. I hung up and decided I did not want to deal with this particular teacher. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, if you're just joining us, we are nearing the end of our annual vision series, a time every fall when we circle up as a family and we remind one another why we're here, especially in a culture marked by things like deconstruction and deconversion or by flakiness and non-commitment. Um, just a reminder, we will have after the gathering our book table in the back where you can buy our recommended reading uh, for this series. All the books are at cost. We don't profit off of them at all. In fact, including this week, my book, which comes out on Tuesday, but yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Um, comes out on Tuesday. We have copies back there. I don't know why, but Amazon just started shipping them all out before it was even out. And I wanted to tell you guys, uh, some of you uh, reached out to me to say, oh, hey, look, I got this thing. Uh, th that really honestly means a lot to me. Nobody is obligated to buy or read this thing, but I just wanted to say thank you. I was very humbled and very grateful for that. If you want to read it, it's back there. Again, at cost. I don't profit from it. Neither does the church. Um, tonight, as we near the end of our vision series, we are asking the question, why be here? Why be here at all? If you wander into Van City Church and you're curious and you ask, to what am I being invited anyway? The answer that we always give is this. You come to the Sunday gathering, what you're doing now. Great job. You join a Van City community. You serve the church as best as you can in your particular season of life and stage of apprenticeship. We realize it's different for everyone. And then you give finances to keep the church going, what Cam was talking about just a few minutes ago. But to look at this list now, tonight, I notice something. Every single item is participatory rather than passive. Meaning, if you ask, what am I being invited to do? The invitation itself is an ask. 
one way that we will reclaim faithfulness as an act of rebellion against the status quo of deconstruction, deconversion, flakiness, bailing out. One way we can reclaim that faithfulness as an act of rebellion is through what is in ecclesiology, which is just a fancy word that means the study of the church. It's called the ministry of presence, which means not just showing up and filling a spot in a pew, but participating. In Hebrews chapter 10, my Bible offers this little header before the section begins with verse 19, and it says, a call to persevere in faith. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of respect and reverence for the inspired authoritative scriptures? Let's read Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. The author says, therefore, brothers and sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. These words are inspired by God. Thanks, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. Do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Now, notice, before the author reaches the penultimate church verse, do not give up meeting together, they've already presupposed that the letter will be turned over, not to an individual, but to a community of faith, the church. We have confidence. We have a great priest. Let us draw near and on and on down the list. But the author of Hebrews wasn't the first one to this idea. This is, after all, a letter written by and to disciples of Jesus. Now, turn to the left in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. One more time. You'll be all right. To the left, Mark, chapter 4. You guys all right? You still with me? Great. Thanks so much. Wow, whistle. That one's new. Who did the whistle? You did it, Coda? That was you? You can whistle like that? Do it again. Prove it. <laughs> was it with the, you know, the whole thing? And, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess it was all right. <laughs> I think it surprised me the first time. That's why I was impressed. No, no, it's a great whistle. It's a great whistle. Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 31. Look at this. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived to come get him. Standing outside, there's a crowd. It's a whole thing. They're standing outside. They send someone inside to call to Jesus. Verse 32. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they told him, listen, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Now, to be clear, this question would have seemed as silly then as it does now to us reading it. Who's your mom? Your mom is your mom. Mary, we just told you. She's right outside. But as usual, Jesus is up to something provocative. Look down at verse 34. He looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. 
Now notice in context, those seated in a circle around him are students of Jesus. They're the ones who are giving him their focused attention, learning from him, his apprentices, his disciples, in other words. This is Jesus' inner circle, part of what we would call his community. But to Jesus, they're not just students and insiders. They are, in his words, his family. And that idea of idea, you know, family is by no means unique to this passage. Think about it like this. Jesus famously referred to God himself as what? Father. Thank you, Levi. Yeah, all that seminary paying off. Yep. <laughs> Father. And he refers to his apprentices as brothers and sisters. And this term shows up all throughout the New Testament some 342 times. It's easily the most predominant term used to describe the relationship shared by those who follow Jesus, brothers and sisters or family. Now, talking about people in your life as family to us sounds sweet and sentimental or, you know, like a trailer from one of those Fast and the Furious movies. I've, I've never actually seen one of them. And, you know, since I like movies, a lot of people are like, well, you've never seen Fast and Furious. you got to see all 25. Or what I'm like, man, it's a movie about cars. How can I possibly get motivated for a movie about cars? Whatever. Brothers and sisters, family. But in Jesus' context, the idea of a community as your family was radical and subversive. See, the world in which Jesus lived was deeply collectivist, uh, meaning it had a strong group identity. Now you're thinking, what the heck does that mean? Here's a definition from Bruce Molina. He writes, in a strong group society, like the one in which Jesus lived, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. Now, this kind of culture is still well represented throughout the world in places like Korea or the Arabic world, parts of Africa, most of Asia, really, most places beyond our Western society. In the Western world, we have what sociologists call individualist or weak group societies. It's the other way around. The individual takes priority over the group. The desires and happiness of the individual always take precedence over the group, and we, as a general rule, act in our own best interests. You do you. Find your own truth. Do what makes you happy, all that stuff. So for many, if not most of us, the strong group or collectivist group identity sounds at very best strange, and at worst, it sounds absurd or oppressive. And the dichotomy between the two widens as Western culture evolves. In the West, we're seeing a rise in something called tribalism, which is also completely like collectivism, also completely like the strong group identity of Jesus' day. Tribalism is less of a community of unified belief than it is an angry mob of against. And this is made manifest in things like outrage culture, takedown culture, cancel culture, the word police, the politicization of everything, intense us versus them boundaries with an emphasis on this idea of being on the right side of history as defined by a small but very vocal digital subculture. That's not the same thing as a collectivist culture. In collectivist cultures, there are typically clearly defined gender roles and paradigms. There's ongoing interfamily roles up into adulthood and beyond. There are honor and shame, ideas that seem foreign, even alien 
to the average American. Now, I bring all that up just to highlight the fact that the individualistic way of life that we take for granted, it's just the air that we breathe, whether we mean to or not, it's the world in which we are raised and live every day. The individualistic way of life that we take for granted was unheard of in Jesus' day. In the world, Jesus knew your primary concern was for the family, not the individual in the family. In Jesus' world, your very identity was inseparable from your immediate family. If you remember the story of Jesus uh, scorned in his hometown, for example, the people of Nazareth identified Jesus by saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers and sisters still with us? You were known first and foremost in the context of your family. So Jesus' world, in other words, was collectivist, a strong group identity. But Jesus refers to his community, his students and his followers and his friends, most of them well outside of blood relatives, let alone his immediate family. He refers to them as his brothers and sisters and mother, meaning his primary bond, his most important relationship, blood or not, tribe or not, was his brothers and sisters in the community. That was radical. And it wasn't just because Jesus expected his community to function like a family. That was actually a very old idea. Really, from page one of the Bible, we're presented with a deeply relational portrait of God himself. On page one, God announces, let us make mankind in our own image and likeness. And scholars, you know, they debate whether the us is the divine counsel, God and spiritual beings, what we often call angels or similar kind of spiritual entities, or is God talking to the other members of the Trinity? But really, either way, it reveals that God is by default from eternity on relational. And what he does is relational. One of my professors, Gary Brashears, used to say that God is a family who makes more families. Meaning we, that we exist at all is an outworking of God's overflowing relational love. And we were created for relational love. So the idea that the people of God were, at least in some sense, a family was not the radical aspect of Jesus' teaching. What's radical is that Jesus doesn't define his family by blood, but by, in his language, whoever does God's will. Another way of saying that would be whoever is orthodox, not the denomination, but whoever subscribes to the ancient historic teachings of Jesus and the church, which is incredible given how intensely defined the lines between Jews and Gentiles had been drawn in Jesus' culture. Jesus is here saying that his true family is open to anyone, Jews or Gentiles. The family, God, a family of God is multi-ethnic, men and women from all nations and all ages. It could be anyone who is obedient to the will of God, who follows the way. And not only does Jesus extend family beyond the father's bloodline, he elevates the new family of orthodoxy to the place of primary importance. Jesus was the oldest living male in his family line, so he would have been responsible for the leadership in his family. But he believed that his family is part of a much bigger family and that that family, which is the family of God, not just blood, was more important than the immediate family defined by blood. And if you think I'm reaching here, look at what Jesus teaches elsewhere. 
He said himself, do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now we know that Jesus taught consistent nonviolence and that later he will specifically command Peter and all subsequent disciples to lay down the sword for good. So the thinly veiled metaphor here is that following Jesus is inherently divisive, even and often especially amongst the members of one's family. Many of you know this very well from your own story and you're still here. Well done. Because Jesus taught that for those of you who will have to choose between the family of God and the family of origin, you either pick the family of God or you cannot faithfully follow Jesus. So think about that and realize that in Jesus's culture, there was zero tolerance for you know, a diversity of religious belief. To this day, if an Orthodox Jew converts to Christianity, a funeral is held to recognize that they have become dead to the family. There are similar practices in devout Muslim homes. Some streams even observe honor killings of those who denounce Islam. In some countries, it is a capital offense to convert from Islam to Christianity. So Jesus' call to family and the radical shift of priorities was an incredible invitation then and now in many parts of the world, to say the least. And though our culture is quite different today, I would argue that there are two reasons Jesus' call to family is even more radical for you and me, because Jesus doesn't present a model for individualism in which the individual takes priority over the group. There's no find your own truth, you do you, do what makes you happy, where the desires and happiness of the one always take precedence over the many. This is wildly at odds with the American sensibility the teaching and invitation of Jesus. Now, to demonstrate, you're gonna love this. Let me read an earlier quote again, but I'm going to replace the term group with the church. Now, note the way this makes you feel as I read. In the church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with the church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. Yikes, how does that feel? In 1938, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote what is largely to this day considered one of the landmark works on Christian community. And he argued this. The sooner that the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, meaning getting bummed that people are here and they're broken and the whole thing messes up sometimes, the sooner that happens, the better for the individual and the community. Every human wish that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself. 
So what does it mean to be here? Why be here at all? What is a ministry of presence? What does it mean to value the church more than the individual, the family of God, as much as the people in it from a person-to-person perspective? If you're taking notes, ministry of presence begins with engagement. Now, please hear me when I say that if you are a visitor or you're new to Jesus or to this particular church or church at all, if you're just beginning to figure out where you fit in all this or at Van City, you are more than welcome to be here, to explore, to observe, to ask questions and take your time, all of that. But if you belong to this family, you are not a passive party to the church experience. For you, there is no Yelp review of church unless it includes a Yelp review of the church goer. Meaning the church is you. It's not an abstract institution. When you come here on Sunday, when you show up to your Van City community during the week, we're not only expecting you to engage, we need you to engage. In other words, we need you. Church is not a provided service for your consumption or even solely for your edification. It is a family. And in a healthy family, everyone pitches in. We're not putting on a show every Sunday evening. We're calling you to join us in a way of life. And look, I get it. We don't always want to engage. I'm right there with you. I'm a person too. I get it. I've been a part of churches for a long time. You don't always feel like participating. It's not just because we are the illegitimate children of Amazon Prime. It's because we're tired or we're worn down by life or the season. We're hurting or we're distracted and we feel as if we have very little to give. I get it. Community costs us something. To embrace a life shared with other people, you have to surrender part, not all, but part of your autonomy. And that is a very difficult thing for us to do. But remember, the high ask of commitment is not about you being subservient to the ruthless demands of the church. It's about the fact that we need you. When you refuse to give the family of God consistent, faithful presence, You are, I'm sorry, but listen to me, you are withholding whatever it is that God has to offer through you and your consistent faithful presence. So what is engagement? It means being a faithful presence, being here on Sunday, being at your Van City community faithfully, consistently, so they can count on you. Not making excuses, not bailing out, not skipping when there's something better to do or when it's sunny outside. In our basics class, if you come and you learn about how communities work and what we believe as a church, we will invite you to join a community with a clear expectation that unless you're sick or you have to work or you have you know, a family emergency, then you will be at your community night, and you will be at the Sunday gathering. And if you cite some other reason, then your community can hold you accountable. Why? Because we're just so hardcore and love to get people in trouble. No, because flakiness destroys community. How can you share life and vulnerability and accountability when you never know who will be there and won't be there or why? How can I do church with someone who comes to community night, but not the gathering? 
or the gathering, but not community night. They'd, they'd only be half in at best. Imagine, you know, someone showing up for piano lessons and telling the teacher, listen, just so you know, I am going to skip every other lesson. I'm not going to make up those lessons and I'm not going to repeat those days. I just, I'm going to skip half of it. The teacher would probably say, okay, well, but you would miss half of what it takes to learn the piano. So engagement means, first and foremost, being here faithfully, consistently. And it means being here on time. Remember, this is not an event. It's not like a movie theater that starts at a certain time and ends at a certain time. It doesn't really matter whether you're in the theater or not. We depend on you. And part of dependability, part of engagement is punctuality. Being on time demonstrates consideration for your brothers and sisters in the church, while lack of punctuality does the exact opposite. And look, I get it. All of us have lives. I get it. It's hard. But engagement means working to manage your time responsibly for the sake of the people expecting you. And that is putting other people above yourself. That's what punctuality does. Engagement means that you're not just here, but you're awake and that you're listening and you're participating, that you're stepping beyond the bounds of your comfort zone to value other people, to check in on them, to be a faithful presence in their lives. Now, I am not talking about becoming a performative, one-person social force of nature. If that were the case, I'd be out of here a long time ago. I'm talking about Kevin Erickson. Kevin freaking Erickson. Kevin, if you know him, routinely inspires and encourages me personally as a fellow member of this family because Kevin is somebody who doesn't show up and, you know, do backflips, at least that I don't observe in the church gathering, or he doesn't look lovingly into my eyes every week and, and shake my hand and say, how is your soul or something like that? He's just here. He's really here. I mean, he's been here since the beginning, and I know he's all, he has a lot of stuff going on in his life. He has a family. He has work. He has a social life like the rest of you guys, but he's here. He's with his family. He's around. He's smiling. He shakes hands. He worships. He opens his Bible. He's engaged, faithful presence. A lot of you are like that. Thank God for you guys. I am dead serious. But the ministry of presence is not just that kind of engagement, being here, being present, being awake. It's also worship. Worship, stewarding intimacy and connection with God's Spirit is not about your preferences. And quite frankly, it's not even just about you and God. It's about the rest of us as well. Believe me, I've been working with churches and church leaders long enough to have heard dozens and dozens of stories from individuals that sound something like this. I showed up to church, I was worn out and empty, but when I saw, not when I heard the song I like, when I saw so-and-so in front of me and their arms raised in worship with wild abandon, I was so encouraged and so emboldened that I was led by them without even knowing it into the presence of God himself. Think of First Peter, where we are, we are declared a royal priesthood that is not just capable, but responsible for bringing one another into the presence of God. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it's your job to put on a show just so that someone else can get into it. It just means that when we make the deliberate, disciplined effort to engage in this unique time and space that we have that's been precious to disciples of Jesus all over the world for centuries, without being subject to our mood or our preferences, when we cultivate intimacy and connection with God, with our minds and our voices and our bodies, you can lift up the entire family of God 
in the process. Think of that language that we just read from Hebrews. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together. It's not just about, you know, your positive life example overall. When we come together as the church, we can encourage one another in a unique and precious way. That's part of what it means to come and to contribute rather, to, rather than to come and take. A couple of years ago, uh, Tab, who's one of our overseers and worship leaders, he told me that there have been times more than once when he's been on stage singing and worshiping and he's finished leading the church in worship, got down off the stage, walked down to the crowd to thank someone, one of you guys, for leading him in worship. Worship leader and musician Dana Dooley argues that sometimes I sing for the person next to me because they need to hear about God's faithfulness, about his goodness and his grace. And I sing a little bit louder so that they know it in the depths of their soul. And sometimes I need you to sing for me. I need to be reminded that he is here and he is not silent. I need to be reminded that he is faithful and he is good. And remember, this is a specific disciplined effort for most of us. You are working to push back the indoctrination of consumer culture and mindless entertainment and cynicism. And we're going to do that effort. We're going to engage in that by standing, standing stoically and mumbling to ourselves. That's how we fight back against the status quo, by just standing here and reading slides, moving our lips. Is that really how we communicate loving devotion to our loved ones? Are your spouses okay with that? Are your friends okay with that? Are your kids fine with that? No, we sacrifice our own mood and preferences to remember that worship is about first and foremost God, but it's about an opportunity to love other people as well. Expressive whole body worship is a ministry of presence for my brothers and sisters that need to remember I'm in this with them. It's not a show that you put on to impress anyone or because it's your responsibility to lead them. And if not, they can't worship at all. But you discipline yourself to go against the norm, to engage God, and in doing so, the family of God around you. Ministry of presence is about worship. And it's also about response. You don't come here to allow the experience of church to just you know, wash over you. You are here to respond to what the Spirit of God is saying and doing tonight. So you respond tonight. You join us as we pray out loud all together when that's what we're doing or in quiet contemplation when that time comes. You read along and you process and you respond in the moment as God works. Now, I'll be honest, you guys know, you've, you've been here, many of you anyway. Our, our church has struggled over the years to embrace what it means to respond in the gathering. And that's okay. It's not the worst thing in the world. We're, we're all learning and process. Every church is different. Every week since the very beginning, we've made space to listen to the Spirit. And every week since the beginning, we share on stage what we think that we're sensing from the Spirit. And for years and years and years now, we've, you know, kind of watched as hardly anyone responds, at least, you know, uh, majority-wise. Now, ordinarily, if that were the case, I might hypothesize, well, dude, we are terrible at hearing from God because about 90% of the time or more than that, no one responds. We are getting this all wrong. But I know that that isn't true because I've also sat with innumerable people over the years who told me on a Monday or a week later or a month later that, man, I, I heard that word and I knew it was for me, 
but I didn't come forward. I didn't respond in that moment at all. And that's not to make anybody feel bad or beat up on you. I've been that person too many times. I totally get it. There are all sorts of reasons for that. We can be understandably self-conscious. That's an obvious one. Or maybe we just feel tired or apprehensive or we question ourselves or the word. And then later God keeps, you know, like Cam was saying about the story with the $200, keeps reminding us. And we're like, fine, I'll write the letter, you know, that kind of thing. I've been there myself. I get it. It could be, honestly, because we ask people to respond by coming forward rather than, you know, a secret prayer layer in the back. And side note, if you're wondering, we do ask you to come forward thoughtfully and with a lot of consideration from the leaders for two reasons. One is because, like I said earlier, response is part of family worship. And like worship, it can inspire and encourage and convict other people to see their brothers and sisters responding. So we want it to be in here with the family, not far away from them. And the second reason is more practical. We did have response in a quiet, private space in the back for years, and hardly anyone ever came to that. So at least this way, our prayer leaders get to stay in the gathering. (laughs) And I get it. It's loud up here. It can feel vulnerable and intimidating or just beyond your comfort zone. But again, remember, the response is not just for you. We are asking you to sacrifice a small part of your autonomy and preference and comfort for the sake of the family. When people tell me after the fact, oh, that word was for me, but I didn't respond, can you process it with me now? I tell them absolutely, of course, 100% of the time I can. It's my honor to do that. What the Spirit says doesn't cease to be true after the gathering ends. But please listen to me with with, humility and grace. There is something unique and special about this space and responding in this space. Look at it this way. If my wife came to me in a moment with tears in her eyes and said, listen, I have been thinking about you and I need to tell you something important. Would it be appropriate for me to hear what she just said, then walk away and you know, shoot her a text tomorrow from my office and say, uh, let's, yeah, let's have a conversation about that sometime. She's a very gracious woman. She would have that conversation with me. But would it be more appropriate to embrace her in that moment and say, tell me everything, be in that moment with her as it happens, because that is a unique space where she is saying something important for now. Do you understand the the distinction there? It doesn't mean that if you don't get up, God won't speak to you, but there's something to being in the moment with the Spirit as he speaks, the opportunity Remember, to be surrounded by prophetic voices that you know love you and care for you as the family of God cries out in worship all around you. There's honestly nothing like it in the entire world. A ministry of presence is response. And then finally, ministry of presence is responsibility. Over my years as a pastor, I've heard people from this church and many other churches lament a lack of received hospitality. It's maybe, you know, among the greatest gripes that people have with churches when they visit a new place. And they'll say things like, well, I showed up, no one engaged me in a meaningful way or, or not the, at least the way I prefer. They didn't talk to me at length or they didn't ask how I was or they didn't invite me to their house or whatever. And I'm not being dismissive of that pain or that problem, but I would offer this gentle pushback. Just a question, did you engage other people? Did you talk to other people at length? Did you ask how other people were? Did you invite someone over to your house? Stepping into the messiness of family means taking responsibility for and with 
the family of God. This isn't Josh's church. It's not Cameron's or Levi's. It doesn't belong to the overseers. The church belongs to King Jesus, and all of us are the family of God. So when something inevitably gets messy, not if, but when, what do you do? Do you gripe about something that I said to your community, or do you bail out because Cam did something that you didn't like? That's the more likely thing. Or do you not show up because, you know, a leader that you don't like personally is on stage that week? Or do you not engage your community because someone hurt your feelings the week before? Or do you go against yourself and your culture and understand that this is my family as much as anyone else's? So you do the difficult and often painful work of stepping into that messiness to work it out with humility and accountability and grace and love for one another to confront, hold accountable and gracious loving kindness, to be open about when you've been hurt and to invite other people into forgiveness? Do you release your family in forgiveness or do you maintain a death grip on your bitterness and say that you've forgiven but then wall a certain person or people out of your life? And then when church breaks down for you, when you can bear it no longer, is everyone to blame but you? Listen, as an overseer of Ann City Church, I and the other overseers will be held uniquely spiritually accountable before God for this church. It's a terrifying reality that we say to all our overseers in training when we begin the training process, something that was said and read over um, Scott and I, the first overseers of the church when we first you know, underwent the process of planting a church. But it's your church too. And if I may be so bold, you'll answer for it as well. If a healthy family could bail out or write someone off when something didn't go their way or when their feelings got hurt or when someone sinned against them, my family would have ditched me years ago. But in a healthy family, there's a shared concern for the whole. And we all take responsibility to care for the group. All of that is part of what it means to have a ministry of presence, engagement, worship, response, and responsibility. I cannot do this without you guys. None of us can follow Jesus all by ourselves. But I'm not interested in catering to a selfish cultural sensibility that treats church as if it were a product for consumption and critique it rather than understanding and acknowledging that it is an imperfect family of love. I want to be here. I can say that with integrity. And I believe I need to be here. I have honestly, it's not a put on, it's not for this sermon or for you guys to make you feel good. I have grown so much in the past few years because of you guys and learned so much from you guys and belonging to this church. I want to treat this family with dignity and respect and to continue to learn what it means to value the family, even at my own expense, my own preferences and comfort and moods and dispositions. And I believe I'm not alone in that. I think that many of you are right there with me. So to end tonight, I realize this is a lot, it's heavy, it's a high ask. So let me read Paul's words from his letter to a church like ours in Philippi. I want to read it over our family tonight as it was once read over their family hundreds of years ago. 
And may it be by the grace of God a prophetic encouragement and conviction in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. Father God, may it be so. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to speak and lead each of us as individuals, men and women, and as a family. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.